We're going to be in Jonah, Old Testament book of Jonah. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to look at the chapter 3, the, uh, the 10 verses that are there. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah. Um, I always tell people, if you're new to your Bible, go to the front of the Bible. It's a book. So there's a table of contents there. And uh, as is the norm in many churches, it's probably going to be on the screen behind me, probably, right? So you can cheat and, uh, and read the screen. I'll read these out loud for us. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And as he issued a proclamation and, and published through, uh, through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and his beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would, not, he would do, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're glad for the morning. We're here because we need you. We're here because you called us to collectively worship you, so we uh, welcomely do that this morning. God, as we, we think about our own need, Lord, we, we confess this morning, we need you like this day needs the sun. We need you like a desert needs water. And so would you water our souls um, by your word, through your spirit. God, I pray for clarity of thought. I pray that you'd um, allow your words to fall on ears that hear and hearts that receive. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the question I have for you this morning is, who are the heroes of our day? That really has been the, the pressing thing that I've been pondering, particularly with the, the world the way it is right now. There's a lot going on in the world that I have to confess um, sometimes leaves me hopeless that um, that the wrongs of the world will be made right. That the things that, that it seems like evil is getting its way and the wicked are winning, almost like the psalmist lamenting in the Psalms, that, that, that good will not prevail. And so who are the heroes in our world today? I think everybody loves a hero, right? We go to movies, we read literature, our kids pretend, play pretend games. Uh, that all kind of have the same theme. A guy or a gal shows up, saves the day, and makes everything awesome, to quote uh, Chris Pratt in Lego Movie. But in the real world, I mean, in the real world, where we work and play, I mean, where are the heroes and who are they? Who do we consider a real hero? Hero, uh, hero in the sense of making a difference in the world that we live in. History would give us some examples of this, starting with our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, unexpecting guy from an impoverished background comes to the prominence of the President of the United States in a time that really needed a courageous leader and he pulls us by his courage um, through um, 
the American Civil War, preventing a, a disunion of, of our union. I think I, um, I recognize Abraham Lincoln more for um, the courage to pen the words of the Emancipation Proclamation that freed and enslaved people in our country and gave them the right to be true citizens. Fast forward many, many years uh, to our 35th president, Robert Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy. And in his inauguration, he said these infamous words, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. What Kennedy was trying to do in that moment was elevate the American people to a higher level of collective service. Two years after that, in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King stands on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he says extemporaneously, I have a dream. And his dream was for racial equity and unity in our country. And really, he had a dream that was so large in that moment that we've seen, of course, a lot of progress in it, but it's a dream that's yet to be fulfilled in our country. I have a dream. A guy named Todd Beamer on 9-11 with a group of other passengers on a hijacked plane that was en route to the, the White House. Todd Beamer, knowing the situation and the peril that they were in, the peril that our country was in, what did he do? He rallied the passengers. He said, let's roll. And you guys know what happened. The plane was able to crash in Pennsylvania somewhere. Who else would we consider to be American heroes right now, or just heroes in general? Um, I spent 20 years and eight days in the military, and so for the last couple decades, definitely through uh, our, um, our operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, we have considered the American military to be um, hero-like. Other first responders in our country, I mean, who can count out single moms, right? They, they do uh, the work of heroines. Uh, we can't throw out the current events going on around the world, particularly the, the courage and the resolve of the Ukrainian people against Russia's invasion of them. We have any sense, we look at some of these people and what they do, what they did, and of course there's many, many, many others. There's heroes right here in this room with us today. And deep down inside, we have to say, man, I just want to be like them. I want to be a hero. I want to make a, a difference. I think, unfortunately, somewhere along the line, kind of like me looking at the world and getting hopeless, we can all become cynical. We look at the economic troubles, not just of our country, but of the world, we look at our divided government. We look at racism in America. We look at ongoing war, wars, not just, you know, um, physical wars on the planet, but strife of all kinds all over the place. And we can get hopeless and we can get cynical. Cynicism says that no one can make a difference. And this is the sin of our day, that we have little hope that nobody else can make a real difference in our world. Those aren't my words. Those are words of... Uh, noted author and poet Dorothy Sayers. Uh, Dorothy Sayers says, The sin of our age is not power hungry, the sin of our age is not power hungry materialism, or as the liberals say, nor is it a permissive spirit of lawlessness, as the conservatives say. The sin of our age is to believe in nothing, to care for nothing, to seek to know nothing, to interfere with nothing. Therefore, those who commit this sin enjoy nothing, hate nothing, find purpose in nothing live for nothing and remain alive for there is nothing for which it will die. To dovetail on what Dorothy Sears is saying, 
we commit the sin of the age when we see nothing bigger than our own needs and interests in our lives. You and I commit the sin of the age when we give ourselves over to nothing. We live in an age where it's not impossible to find true heroes. They're all around us. Yet at the same time, we can become hopeless by the, by the physical nature of the negative things that are happening all around us. Our cynicism becomes real. And by definition, heroism is impossible if you're looking to fulfill only your own needs. Heroism, by definition, says you have to find a purpose, a power, a truth bigger than your own needs, something that transcends everything around you, something that's worthy of your life and, if necessary, worthy of your death. And that's what it means to be a hero. At least that's what I think. That's what we crave when we watch movies. That's what we crave when we're, when we're reading a good, uh, a good novel. And that's what gets us excited. And so the question that I have for you this morning, local churches, is there anything like that that grips your life? Is there a power, a truth, anything significant such that if you lived by it, it would cause you to do at least a little bit to impact your community? And my argument is, is that if you don't have anything like that, you're not participating in the very things that God has created you to do. Now, I'm going to take risks this morning in that assuming you all know the full story of Jonah, all right? And so if you don't know the story of Jonah, maybe you've read the book Moby Dick, which is kind of sort of like the story of Jonah. If you've never read the Old Testament narrative of Jonah, do us a favor. Actually, don't read it now. I'm actually going to tell you, I'm going to narrate a little bit as we go through. We've already read chapter three. There's only four chapters in Jonah, right? So sometime this week as part of your devotions, go read chapters one, two, three, and four, and then you'll know the whole story. But in Jonah three, we get to see how God impacted the community, the city of Nineveh, through a guy named Jonah. We get to see how Jonah made a difference. The author uses the word great in verse two. The word great um, actually means large or capital because uh, in the ancient Near East, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was one of the greatest cities in all the ancient Near East. It was northeast of Israel. It was in what is modern day uh, Mosul, Iraq, a place that I spent a lot of time in as a soldier. Uh, Nineveh was large. Verse three says it took three days just to get a journey across uh, this great province. But what Nineveh was known for in the ancient Near East was its wickedness. Its leaders executed uh, a, a wicked form of warfare with the goal of taking over cities and nations and anything else that surrounded them. And that's the reason that God sent Jonah to Nineveh. He wanted him to speak a word to them uh, of judgment, hoping it would wake them up and change the course uh, of the leaders and, the, uh, of course, the, the, the course of the direction of their, of their city. Now, we don't have a lot of words articulated by Jonah in this book, but Jonah was in the right place to make a difference, and that really is my first point. You've got to be in the right place to make a difference. You've got to be in the right place at the right time for God to impact the community through you. And so the question for us is, how do you know what the right place is? How do you know that you're in the right place? I don't know if where you live in St. Petersburg, Florida, Paradise, I don't know if where I live in the D.C. area um, are, are good examples to, you know, to, to give in regards to being in the right place. St. Pete's tourist area, D.C., all of metropolitan D.C. is a tourist area. So um, these are some popular places I don't say live, but they're popular places to come visit and to frequent. Uh, there's so much going on in both where you live, a lot definitely going on where I live, so much to do. But at the same time, 
if you actually live in these places, here where you are, where I am in D.C., everybody that's there kind of sort of gets used to it, and, and, and in some sense, they want to live in other places. I don't understand that, that but it's, it's kind of like in us to do that. There's always better places to live. It's, it's kind of the mantra that we live, and we live in places that, are, that other people think are, are kind of neat to live in. Here's the key that I think in regards to you got to be in the right place. The key isn't living in a perfect place. Y'all know there is no perfect place to live. The key is in submitting to God in a place where he has you. Submitting to God in a place where he has you. We see this in scripture. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Acts chapter 16, verse 26. Paul comes into Athens on one of his missionary journeys, and he's, com- uh, he's immediately taken aback by the idolatry that he sees. They have statues and idols of different um, um, gods and goddesses that they are worshiping, and Paul is noticing one particular statue that says, to the unknown God. He says this. I'm going to actually back up all the way to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an, an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then the focal verse is verse 26. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind uh, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Now, Paul is making a huge claim here, a huge claim, not just for people in the first century, but he's making a huge claim for us even now. Firstly, he's saying from one man, that's Adam and Eve, Adam, you know, from the, from the garden, God has made all the nations of the earth But then he goes on to say that this same God has set the boundaries by which we live and act and work in the world that we're given. So in the backdrop of all the things that you do, all the things that you decide for yourself, God is superintending over your life to put you where he wants you to be. He he placed you in the family he wanted you to be placed in. He caused you to be born in place, the era, the generation that you were born into, and perhaps even now. Well, definitely, even now, he has you where he, he wants you. God in his sovereignty says, I've put you where you are, in your right choices, even in your wrong choices. Where you are right now is where God has you. And that means you have the opportunity, like Jonah, to agree with God and make the best of it. To crudely say it is bloom where you're planted, because that's where God wants you to be. Someone said, Most people spend most of their time trying to enter a room they are already in. Said negatively, we often attempt to leave the place we are destined to be in. It is in in the human, human nature to oftentimes run from those things that we should actually um, invest ourselves in. And that really is the overarching picture of Jonah. He's running from the thing that God has called him to do. Interestingly, Jonah didn't impact Nineveh because he agreed with God and made the best of it. In fact, in the first two chapters, when you read it, you learn he didn't even want to go there. Jonah knew he wasn't being invited on a vacation to Disney World. He was given a hard task. 
right? Go to, go to speak to an obstinate, wicked, evil people. Give them a word of judgment and let God do the rest. Jonah is the reluctant prophet. And only after a little coercion does he submit to God in a place where God had him. And so you have to be in the right place. That's the first point that I have for you. The second point is this. You have to be becoming the right person. You've got to be in the right place. Secondly, you've got to be becoming the right person. And we see this with Jonah. The misnomer is the thought of becoming the right person means that I'm talking about perfection, that your life is in order, like, you know, like everything is, is fitly, uh, neatly fit where it's supposed to be. You've got to be perfect. But do you all think you've got to be perfect for God to use you? Verse 1 tells us that that's, that's not the case. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Did you hear it? The, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Jonah's given a command from God a second time because he grossly was disobedient to God the first time. Jonah blew it. God said in chapter 1, Jonah, go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? He went the opposite way. Another example of this in Scripture is, is the interaction of the apostle Peter with, with Jesus. Um, right before the Passion, uh, Peter has this great revelation that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. Um, up close and personal, great relationship with Peter and, and Jesus. In one moment, Jesus warns Peter, Peter, be careful with your life. At some point, you're going to be tempted to deny me. And Peter says, like, there's no way that's going to happen. And of course, when Jesus is arrested, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Here's what the Bible is telling us. It's telling us with people like Jonah, with people like Peter, with people like us in this room, God uses our failures. Failing God is not the final straw. In fact, I think of it like this. Perhaps we can't even say that we fail God because when, we tr- when we're trying to do something um, and, and it just doesn't come out the way it is, a lot of times God often just brings us around the corner so we get another opportunity to work it out. A test, if you will, so that when we fail, God gives us another go. And through that, we learn that we can't run from God. We can run from God. We can't outrun God. I think the thing that we don't want to hear, though, is, is, is how God actually makes us the right person. He makes us the right person through suffering. Suffering is not a pretty word. In the, I mean, it's just, it's like a cuss word in, in the Christian vernacular, isn't it? We don't want to say that word. We definitely don't want to experience the, the, the act of suffering. We don't like it because a lot of times we buy into um, the American perspective of, of life going the way that we want it to go, of living that happily ever after dream, of life as we're living it, being healthy, wealthy, wise, we want to be happy and cool, not go through life and heartache, heartache. But there's a theology of suffering in the Bible. Matthew 12, Jesus is spending a lot of time with the disciples. This is on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount where he's just teaching them, teaching them narrative after narrative about uh, what the kingdom of God is like. And in Matthew 12, we see him interacting with his own disciples, those followers of his, and kind of peeking in are the religious leaders. They're trying to spy on Jesus and figure out who, who he is and what he's like. And so Jesus is speaking with the religious people, and he says these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so the religious leaders hanging around Jesus, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to like, what, what's this guy all about? This can't be real what he's doing. These, these, even the miracles he's doing, they're a fake. And they ask for a sign. And of course, they're watching Jesus from up close and from afar, and they're seeing him do miracles and signs all over the place. And the truth is, I think we kind of do the same thing. We, we all want a sign. It's not wrong to want a sign. We want a sign that God is out there. We want a sign that God is working on our behalf. We want a sign that God exists. A lot of times we'll say, oh God, if, if, if you would just give me a sign, I'd believe you. I'd follow you. Here's what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders. You don't and you won't. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, and of course by extension he's saying to us, if you can't follow the external signs of God working in the world, then you very likely will not follow the signs of God working in your own heart either. Romans 1 puts it like this, it's our sin that suppresses the truth of God. Not that we've missed an opportunity to see some impressive sign. And so the religious people, what do they do? They want a sign. They want a power sign. Come on, Jesus, show us how great you are by the miracles you do, and we'll believe you are who you say you are. And Jesus says, if you want to know me, if you want to get to know uh, my Father who sent me, it has to come through weakness. Jesus says, I'm going to lay in the grave three days and three nights. And with these words, Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, your sign is that I'm coming, not in power, but in weakness. And that, that's, a, that's a sense that Jesus, that, that Jonah mirrors Jesus. We see this in, in Jonah's life. Jonah was a mess. So if you go back to chapter 2, Jonah's, uh, God, J- Jonah chapter 1, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, speak a word of judgment that they might relent. Jonah doesn't like the people of Nineveh because of their wickedness, and he wants God to, uh, to destroy them, not save and rescue them. And so Jonah goes the opposite way. He gets on a ship. That ship, uh, Jonah's, uh, it, obviously God brings a storm. Um, the, the, the storm kind of, Jonah gets tossed over. Um, God causes the fish to swallow him up. Chapter 2, he's sucked up by this big fish. He's in the belly of the whale for, for three days. Can you match that? I mean, there's been, there's been some uh, speculation that a whale could, would and could swallow a human being and that that human being could, could be in the being of a, the, the belly of a whale and survive. Seaweed wrapped around his head, swimming in gastric fish, fish juices. I mean, that's just like nasty, right? <laughs> so in my creative mind, I think that in three days when that fish vomits Jonah up and he happens to be vomited up on, on, the, on Nineveh, the coast of Nineveh, I imagine Jonah looked so horrible, smelled so bad, that just the mere sight and the smell of him um, caused the Ninevites to repent. It's like, all right, give up. We give up. <laughs> just, just go wash yourself. But when you think about it, there's, there's very little in the story, in this narrative, that suggests Jonah is in the right place. God has to force that on him, kind of. There's there's little in Jonah's character at this moment that suggests he's becoming the right person. And so here's my point. Jonah mirrors Jesus in in the way that Jesus is, uh, Jonah was made to be weak. The way that we know God is through weakness. Jonah had to suffer. 
Can, can I say it like this without you getting offended? God made him suffer. God has to wound him to make him useful. Because here's what we learn in Scripture. Suffering makes us a servant. Because it gives you a different perspective. And that seems unfair perhaps to some of you, maybe even cruel. But that's the way God got Jonah's attention. Have you had this observation yet that the people in our world that support fundraising efforts and labor for organizations that take care of kids are, are, and kids with, with birth defects are, are those who those parents who've had kids with birth defects? Have you ever noticed that those who advocate for, advocate against drunk driving are those who've been affected by it, Mothers Against Drunk Driving? There's all kinds of organizations like that. Suffering makes you useful. It's never pleasant, but it does make you useful. It makes you get your eyes off of yourself and onto God and his purposes. So in a sense, suffering is a gift. Paul writes a a thank you letter to the church at Philippi, and he's thanking them for their participation in the gospel with him. This is a church that he planted, kind of like your church was planted, and over a 10-year stretch, uh, in their poverty and out of persecution, they still do all they can to support Paul in his mission of going and starting churches. And he's writing a a letter kind of at this 10-year anniversary saying, Thank you for being a part of the suffering that I've experienced by just participating me with me in the gospel. And in verse 29, he asks this kind of like a crazy verse. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering gets your eyes off of yourself. I think many of us have this idea that if God is going to use me, I've got to have my life together. If God's going to use me, I have to have a greater level of intelligence. I've got to have a greater level of ability. I've got to have, like, out-of-this-world talents. And I think the picture of Scripture is exactly the opposite. But my, life doesn't have to, my life doesn't have to be squeaky clean. For God to use me, he's not interested in my ability. He can raise up people with abilities all over in a second. He wants your availability. God wants your service, and he gets that by by causing us to suffer. So God changes the person first, and then he impacts the community. God changes the person first, and then he impacts the community. Local church, God changes you first, and then through you, he changes your community. I think that's the pattern. And the process by which God changes us is called sanctification. It's the process by which God makes us holy. Theologically, that is what it means to be becoming the right person. Holiness is not a bad word. It means God has separated you to himself so that over time, in this slow, meandering life that we have, this journey of Christian faith, we're slowly wanting to do more of the things that God wants us to do and less of the things that our sinful flesh wants to do. I like Wayne Grudem's definition. Wayne Grudem is a systematic theologian. He writes, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. I think the thing that sticks out to me in in Grudem's definition is that sanctification really is the work of God in me, but I have a part to play. I participate in it. It's not like I'm just laying on my bed. Lord, do it. Just do it now because my wife is sick of my sin, right? That's not how it happens. Perhaps you heard the story of a 
uh, of a guy who experienced a hurricane uh, in this coastal town, kind of like uh, New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina. The levee breaks and the water floods the streets. The water comes up to the neighborhood. His, his house is surrounded by water, and the only way he can escape is to go to the roof. A lot of people around him are doing this, and uh, he's and as a Christian, so he prays and prays, all right, Lord, you got to get me down from this roof and deliver me, save me. And so a couple hours later, a guy comes on a John boat. Say, hey, come on down. I, I got you. I can take you to safety. And the man waves him off. Say, hey, I just pray. God's going to deliver me. A couple hours later, another guy comes in a John boat. The guy's still on his roof. The water's continuing to rise. And he waves the guy off. Hey, I pray. God's going to deliver me. A couple hours later, a helicopter comes. The pair of rescuers lower that cable with the horizontal light contraption that you can like, lay yourself in. They're going to hoist him up. He's going to be saved by a helicopter. The guy just waves him off. I pray God's going to deliver me. So you know what happened? The guy died. He gets to heaven because he's a Christian. He's a believer. And the first thing he asks God, Lord, I prayed during the hurricane when the water flooded all around me and I thought you were going to come and deliver me. And the Lord reminded him, I sent two John boats on a helicopter. And of course, that's a fictitious story. Lord, please don't let something like that happen, right? But the moral of the story is God uses means. He uses people. I don't want to sound her- heretical and make it suggest, not suggest in any way that our God isn't gracious to respond to us when we pray. He absolutely does. But I am suggesting that oftentimes God uses people and he works with us in the process. And so you've got you to be in the right place which is wherever God would have you. You've got to be coming to the right people, which is the process of sanctification. Here's the third and, and, and final point I want to make with you this morning. You have to have the right message. You have to have the right message. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So that's all that we have of the record of Jonah saying to the Ninevites. Yet 40 days and the Ninevites will be overthrown. According to the text, he says eight words. I'm going to suggest very likely there are a few more words that he said, and these were the only ones that were recorded. I'm not trying to add to Scripture by saying that. Scholars actually uh, corroborate that. The, the author, we think it was Jonah telling this story, writing it down, capturing it, and he only gave that which the Spirit um, gave him to convey the story of, uh, of this means of God's great delivery. Of course, the story of Jonah is a precursor to Jesus being resurrected, right? But more importantly, these are pagan Assyrians. They are far from God, and yet by verse 9, we knew that if they knew somehow that if they would repent, God would have compassion on them. So my speculation is Jonah had a few more words. They're just not recorded in the pages of Scripture. And the, and, the, and the words that Jonah gave them were surely words, firstly, of judgment. And so we have the right message when we know that there's two parts of this message of redemption. There's law and there's gospel. The law says we are more sinful and wicked than we care to believe. And that's basically the message of verse 4. God has had it with you, Ninevites. You're going down. You think you're the greatest superpower on the earth. You think that you're all powerful. Absolutely. You're wicked, sinful. You can't imagine the scope of it. And that's what Jonah is saying in verse four. You're a wicked and sinful people. That's the law. God's going to judge you. When we say the law, we're principally talking about the moral code given to Moses 
uh, on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. These aren't suggestions. It's, it's, it's God's demand of perfection from you and from me. In the, in the New Testament, Jesus gives it a facelift. He says, here are, the, here are the summation of the commandments of God. Love God and love people like you love yourself. Have you ever noticed that you don't do either one of those too well? The law reminds us of God's standard in our sin. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think what we do a lot of times is we compare ourselves to other people. We look around it's like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm definitely not doing that. But other people aren't our comparison. Our comparison is God and his word. And the law tells us we're sinful and we should be judged. We have nowhere to look but to God to get us out of the sinful mess that we're in. Paul goes on and says in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. And we deserve an eternal separation from God because of our sin. And so here's what Jonah says. You're in trouble, Ninevites, with a capital T. That's how we would say it where I grew up in North Carolina. But that's also what the Bible says about you and me, local church. You're in trouble with a capital T. But here's the kindness of God. He also says, I'm going to give you the opportunity to repent. And then look how, to, how the king responded. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They, were, they called a fast for, and put him in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, the, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. Verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and its nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil, away, uh, evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may see, uh, we may not perish. And then finally, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. So what happened here? We could say a lot of things happened, but I think the principal thing that happens is the gospel happens. And that probably is the unwritten part of Jonah's message that he articulated, but just isn't captured here, but it's assumed. And so the first part of the message of redemption is the law, which points out our sin, and with the Spirit's help drives us to repentance. And God's gift of grace to us is to see that sin, and God also gives us a desire to turn from that sin to him. The second part of the gospel says we're more loved and accepted than we could ever possibly hope. I've got good news and bad news for you, local church. You guys want the good news first or the bad news? You're going to get the bad news first, right? You are more sinful than you will ever know or believe. But on the heels of that is some very, very, very good and gracious news. That in the cross of Jesus, when you repent of your sin and God gives you with faith to believe the person and work of Jesus on your behalf, you're more loved and accepted than you could ever possibly fathom. And, that's what, and what this means is, in all the ways that we try to make our life squeaky clean and good and do what's right, you don't have to do those things because God loves you through Jesus. It means that when you look for affirmation and love through the opposite sex, it means you don't have to use good grades or success in our jobs to make us feel good about ourselves. We don't need the semblance of a perfect life to get people to like us. 
You don't need to put on nice clothes and get your hair fixed so somebody will notice you. Now, we live in America. Y'all live in St. Petersburg, Florida, where everybody's beautiful. So it's not wrong to do those things, but you don't, do, you don't need to do those things to, to, to convince God to love you. He loves you in Jesus when you put your faith in him, and that makes you okay. And I think this is what Jonah says to Nineveh. And the whole city, the Bible says, was changed. He impacted a whole community. Now, a whole community, first chap- uh, chapter 4 says, was about 120,000 people. That's a lot of people. St. Petersburg is only like twice that. And, you, and, and that would have been a huge city in the ancient Near East. Um, the, the thing is, this is not an anomaly. Something like this happened in the 18th century, mid-18th century in the United States of America. About 100, uh, 150 churches were planted in, in 1741. About 50,000 people came to faith when something very similar to this happened in our own country. When the gospel is involved, a whole society can be transformed. And God doesn't do it like, he doesn't just snap his fingers and do it. He calls people like us to do it one person at a time. And it changes communities. And one of the signs of this in the 18th century were colleges, a bunch of colleges that were started primarily to train pastors. And you've heard, so, heard of some of these, Princeton and Brown and Rutgers and Dartmouth. Our whole nation was transformed by the gospel primarily in this era through people going to these colleges and then going out and sharing the gospel. We learn from Jonah that God's goal is redemption. What does God redeem? He redeems people. He redeems cities. He redeems nations. And so why, local church, do you need to be the right people, right, be in the right place, becoming the right persons with the right message? It's why God loves people. God loves people. He loves messed up people. And that should make us glad because such are some of us. And we don't have to read about it in history. He actually does this through people like you and like me. And this can happen here. It actually should happen. It should happen not just when you come to this building, but it should happen in all the places where you are when you're not in this building. When you go to school, when you're at work, when you're in your neighborhoods, when you're at recreation and play with the people that you do that with. And for those of you who might say because of these, these words, and you, maybe you have a Jonah perspective or mentality, and say, well, Jeff, I'm scared, or Jeff, I'm, into arti- I'm not articulate, or, or Jeff, I'm not smart, or I'm too busy, I would say to you, so is everybody else that God uses. So let me conclu- conclude with this. Has the word of the Lord come to you like it did to Jonah? Worship team, you guys can come, back, come on back up. Has the word of the Lord come to you like it did to Jonah? Is God speaking to you about being in the right place, about becoming the right person, having the right message? Is this the first, second, maybe even the third time that he's tried to get you to to buy into that? Well, here's what it turns out. It turns out that real heroes of our age aren't the icons of history. They surely aren't the Marvel characters that swoop in with great eternal powers to save the day. They're simply people who say yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would not return void, that it would accomplish in the hearts of your people what you intend for it to do. Thank you for local church, for their presence in this city, for the ministries uh, that they have both within and without, and for all that you're doing to grow and mature this church to become all that you would have it to become for the good of this culture and for all uh, that the glory of the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, local church.